I'll try. I did not want to move to Nashville and be a gay songwriter. I just wanted to be a songwriter. I loved what you were doing. The textures you were doing, I think, are great. You know, I wasn't writing autobiographical songs. Hiding was a part of life. Name the openly gay country artists in Nashville. Ready, go. That's a huge problem. We weren't out as artists because we knew what that meant. We were scared. Now that you're a woman, can you hold your own? I don't think I ever regretted being out. I think I thought it would have been a lot easier to be heterosexual. So I mean, come on. Joining me via Zoom today is TJ Parcell, director, producer of the documentary Invisible. It's going to be featured as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival. Now, you can stream this film online as part of the festival online at the Eventive app or, and here's what I really suggest, uh, by going to edmontonfilmfest.com or attend in person. That's right. We've got screenings in person all week long. This film, Invisible, screens Friday, October 8th at 6.30 p.m. Or you can also catch it Saturday, October 9th at 2.30 p.m. at Landmark City Center Cinemas 9. That's downtown, as with all screenings of the EAFF. And as an added bonus, you'll be able to see TJ there after the screening at Landmark to do a Q&A. TJ, welcome to Moving Radio. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I have a feeling audiences are really going to love this film, whether it's at home alone or whether it's in the theater with us. Can you let the audience know a little bit more about the women in this documentary, Invisible, that explores the journey of a group of gay songwriters who have carefully navigated the male-dominated and hetero-heavy landscape of country music? When I moved to Nashville, a friend of mine called me up, and I had just moved here. And, and this friend called me up, and he said, TJ, would you like to have coffee? I've got this idea for a film. And this was a guy who was in the stained glass business. So my expectations were not all that high. And I had coffee with him. I said, okay, what do you got? Uh, I wasn't quite that condescending, but um, he said, gay women and country music. There's this entire network of gay women songwriters who've written for everybody. And many of them are my friends. And I just looked at him and I had one of those RCA dog moments. My head just kind of tilted and I thought, huh. And the fact that Bill... It was friends with several of these women uh, meant we had access and in documentary filmmaking, that's an important part of any documentary filmmaking is getting access. So that, that certainly was like, wasn't lost on me, but I think immediately I started to think about, Oh my goodness, I can't imagine a more repressive environment than uh, country music, an industry, Nashville, the South. And so in my mind, I was immediately wondering what was that like for these ladies? What, how did they survive? How did they navigate that industry, you know, I mean, myself, I had spent 20 years in software before I ruined my life to become an artist. While I was in software, it was a very competitive industry where people were making a lot of money and people would use anything they could against you. For me, I was in the closet and being in the closet for me was a business decision. And so I played the pronoun game. And I knew from having lived that for a couple of decades, what that cost me. There was like this instant you know, recognition and empathy. And yet I think I also realized that it probably paled in comparison to what these women must have gone through. And they grew up in the South. They, they grew up in some of them in very religious homes. A couple of our subjects were daughters of preachers and ministers. It, to me, it was just, it seemed really rich. And so three weeks 
from the, the date of that coffee, I was sitting down interviewing Mary Gaucher. And Mary Gaucher is a, uh, uh, a, uh, a wonderful artist who became a songwriter at 40 and kind of late in life. She says, for whatever reason, songwriting entered my heart. And uh, that's what I had to do. And I, you know, in that interview, I think I, I had this moment like 10 or 15 minutes into it. I kind of sat back in my chair and I was just blown away by how vulnerable she was willing to be and open about her story and her journey. And this project just took off. There, uh, Jess Leary uh, is another uh, songwriter. She wrote a, a couple of number one hits, uh, Mi Vida Loca, Where the Green Grass Goes with Tim McGraw. Jess said, oh, Mary Gaucher did it. I'll do it. And then Bonnie Baker, who's got several number one hits behind her back. She says, oh, Jess and Mary did it. I'll do it. And then Kennedy Rose says, oh, Jess, Mary and Bonnie did it. I'll do it. And it just, the project just took off. And these women opened up in, in ways that I, I could not imagine. You know, I, I can tell you also in the beginning, I, it, was, it was kind of a little naughty thought. It was a little giddy thought. I, I thought, ooh, I, I, I would just so love to be a fly on the wall when some of these good old boys find out how much of their beloved country music was written by lesbians. You've maybe accomplished that, hopefully, if they get to see this film, that's for sure. The story is so much deeper than that. And these women went there. You know, it was really like one of these things where it was just like, hang on. I mean, we have another artist in our film, Kai Fleming. She's in the Songwriting Hall of Fame. Kai Fleming has written so many number one hits. She doesn't know how many she's written. She's written for everybody, including the Tennessee State song, uh, Smoky Mountain Rain. When Kai Fleming came to Nashville, she was in the 70s. Within six months, her and her writing partner had three songs on Barbara Mandrell's album. And her and her partner were songwriters of the year for three years in a row. Now, Kai Fleming knew immediately what the consequences would be to her being out in the South, in Nashville, in the 70s. That was not an option. So Kai put her sexuality on the shelf. She wasn't gay. She wasn't straight. She wasn't anything. And of course, she paid you know, a personal cost for that and a, and a toll of that. But there's some of the other women in our film. Uh, Diane Davidson is an artist who came to Nashville when she was 17, incredibly talented, powerful singer. She had four albums by the time she was 21. But on her fourth album, she had a lesbian love song. That killed her career. It was just over. But Diane will tell you, she said, you know, I think she says in the film, she's like, you know, look at me. I am so obvious. You know, being in the closet was not an option for her. You know, or Mary Gaucher says, you know, there was no closet big enough for this. Their experiences was one perspective. Kai Fleming's was another. Bonnie Baker, her story. I mean, she opens the film talking about, you know, I'll be honest. I think my development as an artist would have happened sooner had I been more honest about this aspect of my life. She too, when she came to Nashville, put her sexuality on the shelf and she she thought maybe she could just level the playing field she didn't want to be a, a gay songwriter she just wanted to be a songwriter and in the course of the film we we see and experience quite a, a transformation that bonnie personally went through when she sat down for us for the film she spoke about her sexuality and her journey and this is a, a one of the artists who grew up in a, a religious home her father was a preacher. She wasn't allowed to listen to music as a kid. So she spent hours and hours in the, in the church playing the piano, making up her own music. She wasn't allowed a voice. 
So Bonnie was very comfortable writing songs for other people, but she sat down for us. The first interview that she did was, was on the heels of the, the first women's march after the 2016 election. There were a number of people in the States that were very upset about what was going on politically and women especially. And I think that might've motivated Bonnie's willingness to um, sit down and, and share with us. And it opened up something for her. And after, after our first interview, she had this burst of creativity and she wrote this body of work that was deeply personal. And there's a song that we track in the, uh, the development of in the film called Dry County. And it's a, a powerful, powerful song. And uh, um, it's, it was a privilege to um, be on that ride with her. Something I'm very thrilled about sharing with the audience. I think I lost track of the question. I know there, there's just so much I want to tell you about the film and I hope people will come out to see it because these women are just extraordinary. The biggest thing that I hope people will come away from the film with is that in spite of all these forces that seem to conspire to keep them down, you know, religious families, religion, uh, their own struggles with their sexuality, the industry that is not very accepting of anybody who's different, in spite of all those things, these women persevered anyhow their art came through anyhow, their voices. And, and I, I, they, if you look at their catalog, they've made an indelible impact on the genre. Um, I, I challenge anyone to look at the entire catalog and, and have not heard some of these songs and, and been moved by them. Um, so what we're kind of doing is we're lifting up the covers and, and taking you really deep into that process that these women went through to bring us the music that we so love. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And even for somebody like myself that doesn't have a wealth of knowledge about that genre of music, particularly at that time, even some of those songs and, you know, the artists were recognizable to me. And it was definitely peeling back the layers on things that I thought I understood about that genre of music and uh, the songwriting behind it. It's difficult enough to be a woman trying to make a career in popular music at that time. And even in some ways now as well. But, you know, what you show to your audience is just how many people struggle to survive in an industry that wanted their talent, but wanted nothing to do with them uh, as to who they are as a person. So can you talk to the audience uh, listening right now about the layers of hurdles that people had to overcome from the record labels themselves to maybe radio as well, and how this kind of corporate structure of the music business was really setting them up to either marginalize them or for them to fail. You know, I'm going to go back to Diane Davidson for a moment, the, uh, the artist that had the four albums. I mean, she's got such a powerful voice. And, uh, you know, in the 70s, to have four albums by the time you're 21, you had to have been talented. There, there was no such thing as, uh, you know, independent movement. You couldn't do your own record. You needed a record company to do that. So here was this extraordinarily talented woman. She opened for the Moody Blues. She toured with Linda Ronstadt. But the moment that she put out there, the moment she wrote about her life and she wrote about her love and she wrote about the things that were important to her, that's when the industry said, oh, no, 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 no. And her career was over. It's ironic because I think it was, I think it was Hank Williams that said in country music, all you need is three chords and the truth. And the ironic thing is that that truth is highly uh, controlled and manipulated or homogenized in terms of what plays on country radio. 
And I'll tell you that about probably just two or three months into this project, I really started to scratch my head and wonder how much of what these women were dealing with was because they were gay and how much of it was because they were women. Because, it, I mean, there, misogyny is, a, is a, a, a big factor in country music. And I think anyone that knows anything about the country music industry is probably not surprised by that. I mean, all you have to do is listen to country radio. Um, there was a study done in 2019 of country radio airplay. And women only got 13% of airplay. There used to be a rule in uh, radio that you could only play two women for every 10 and never two in a row. It's not a spoken rule anymore, but if you just look at those numbers, I think we're actually worse than that now. I think, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, what I'm hoping the film will do is serve as a, a bit of an indictment of the patriarchy of country music. Uh, in the industry, because it's just women are under underrepresented, not just on airplay and in the radio, but they're underrepresented uh, in key decision making roles. And it's still it's still a good old boy network. So you know, some of the artists you, you hear in our film talk about, um, you know, Cindy Bullens was told that she couldn't write her own records. Uh, she couldn't write her own songs. She couldn't produce her own records. So she went and wrote her own records and told the uh, the executive that that uh, a man did it. And he was, oh, okay, fine. And country radio, to this day, if you're to have a career in country music, you need radio airplay. And in the United States, that is controlled by just two or three companies. And the women, to get their their uh, records played on the radio, they have to go out on the records on the uh, on the radio circuit. And they have to meet the uh, program directors and they have to meet the disc jockeys. And the level of sexual harassment that these women are subjected to is appalling. I mean, many people have heard about Taylor Swift and how she sued that radio jock for squeezing her butt over a bet. Well, guess what? That's very common and quite prevalent. I don't think there's a, a single woman that I talked to in the course of making this film that didn't either personally experienced, who had personally experienced it, and all of the women that they knew had experienced it as well. And this is like one of those unspoken open secrets in the radio industry. And I think that, in, in my opinion, country radio is the Harvey Weinstein of the, uh, the music industry. And why we're still tolerating that, uh, I don't know. And so we happily uh, expose that in the film. Um, and yet it was hard to get, get some of the women to talk about it. There's another artist in our film, Shelley Wright, who had major breakthrough success, several number one hits, single white female, uh, shut up and drive. Um, this was, um, later in the nineties and, uh, into the two thousands, Shelley had a, uh, very vibrant career, but Shelley was in the closet and she couldn't be in the closet anymore. And she found herself in a situation where she literally had a pistol in her mouth. And she caught sight of herself in the mirror and she started crying and she said, I can't live this way anymore. And Shelly came out in a very strategic way in a very orchestrated way. At the time that she came out, she did it on the Today Show. She wrote a book and had that released at the exact same time in a documentary. It was a very, very brave move. The industry turned their back on Shelly Wright. And the way that that happened was probably even more chilling. She said it wasn't like they shut the door. It was just, they just quietly clicked shut and backed off. Now, Shelly came from a, a military family. She did a lot of, of performing for the troops. She loved it. The troops loved her. After she came out, those invitations completely dried up. It was chilling 
you know, what happened to uh, Shelly. And there's, there's not a, a single woman in our film who did not uh, at one time or another um, acknowledge the contribution that Shelly made to them personally and, and uh, to the community uh, and to the industry. She performs some now, she's an activist, but I, I, was, I still hope that the film will, will provide some degree of um, vindication for her. Uh, it took me a long time to get her on board. And I, I think it was because she was bruised from her experience. And she's one of the few people that were willing to talk about uh, some of the stuff that goes on in country radio. There was one uh, artist that I was interviewing when I asked her, I said, well, tell me about country radio. And she just stiffened right up. Or I, I, more specifically, I said, tell me about sexual harassment on the uh, radio circuit. And she just stiffened right up and said, no comment. She says, you know what, turn that off. And we turned off the camera and she looked over at another artist that was in the room and they started talking and both of them concluded within five minutes that they did not know a single woman who had not experienced that. And I had a hard time getting someone to talk about it. I went to one of our experts in the film, Robert Orman. I said, Robert, I really want to touch on this in our film because I think it's important. And uh, I said, who, who would talk about it? And he said, Shelly will. And, and Shelly was able, was quite willing to talk about it, but that's because Shelly has nothing to lose. Shelly's not putting out records anymore. She's not dependent on, on, the, on the country radio medium to have a career. I, I guess I probably proportionately spent too much time talking about that, but that's just one really egregious example of, you know, the, the power dynamics within that industry that is out of whack and needs a microscope shined on it or a, or a spotlight shined on it in, in a huge way. We're speaking today with T.J. Parcell, director-producer of the documentary film Invisible. It's featured as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival. You can stream it online during the festival on the Eventive app by going to edmontonfilmfest.com. Or you definitely want to do this is try to attend it in person at the screening on Friday, October 8th at 6.30 p.m. Or Saturday, October 9th at 2.30 p.m. at Landmark City Center Cinemas 9 downtown. And of course, as I stated before, TJ will actually be in the house uh, doing a Q&A post-film, uh, and it'll be a fantastic experience for you. All the things that we've kind of talked about seem, you know, it, it would be difficult not only to talk to these women about, but also to cover for yourself. Because what I've found about the film is that it just doesn't end up being a parade of these really intense and kind of, you know, mortifying and horrifying stories about, you know, either harassment or prejudice or, or whatever else you could say about what has happened in the industry at that point in time. This amazing balance that you have, TJ, to be able to tell us these stories and have these women be able to do that, but also be able to share their amazing music at different points. Talk to us a little bit about in, in the editing process, probably when you're putting this all together, of uh, being able to balance the thing that these women love to do is write songs be able to showcase those kinds of songs and the passion they have about songwriting with also all the other unfortunate things they've had to experience in the business. The one thing that I hope people will come away from this film with, the most important thing that I hope people will come away from this film with is that this is a triumphant story that these women, in spite of all these different forces that, that uh, almost seem to conspire to keep them down, religion, the familial issues, their personal issues of, of coming to terms with their sexuality, the industry, 
an industry that's not very welcoming to anyone who's different. In spite of all those things, these women persevered anyhow. Their voices came through anyhow. And all of these things informed their art. Mary Gaucher in the film talks about, for a song to be any good, it has to be vulnerable. If you're not vulnerable, you're, you're not writing anything worth listening to. And that's what they do in the songwriting is they rip their chests open and they bear their soul. At the core, we're all the same. And a good song will speak to us on a level that just moves us. And that's what they do. And, and the trauma that they experience, the, the environments that they came out of, the struggles that they have, the heartaches that they have, that's the best music. And so I, I think when I began this journey with these women, these were the kind of things that I was really interested in exploring. I, I, I have to admit, I wasn't a country music fan, though, you know, I mean, I, of course, I was aware of the crossover hits and, you know, most of Kai Fleming's catalog I actually knew. And, um, but I, I wasn't so much enamored with the music as I was their personal journeys and, and what it took to get them there. And so in the editing of the film, that was one of the things that we were doing. We wanted to go deep because these women took us deep. They really took us there. At the very beginning of the project, I, I sat back and I thought, wow, this is really powerful. What they're willing to share, they've been eager to share, they've wanted to share, they wanted to tell the world this story. So for me, it was kind of a thing of like, let's just create the safe space for them to do that and get out of the way and let them do it. A little diversion from the question you asked, but I, you know, I think it, it was, in, I, I think it became very clear to me early on that Bill, my producing partner and myself, we're both gay men, but we realized we're still men. And this was a woman's story. So it was very important to fill out our team and some of the lead creative roles with women. So my director of photography is a gay woman and my editor is a woman. She's bisexual, but she's married to a man. I think both of these women were able to help us go deeper in our understanding of what these women went through and uh, how they came out the other side. For me, I would, I would kind of, it was like a life-changing experience. It was a privilege to be on this journey as these women shared to the level that they did and then to, to uh, you know, work with such a great team to put it together. I mean, the edit alone was, um, I came out of NYU, the NYU graduate film program. I went to film school at 50. I became friends with a, a number of the faculty there and my editor was my editing professor. And when I started this project and it started to become clear how, how powerful the material was, I got on a plane, I went back to New York and I, I went to the head of the program. I said, John, I think I have something and I don't want my inexperience to uh, get in the way of realizing the full potential of this material. The NYU Production Lab, they, they, it's a lab they, they had put together to help people like me, you know, uh, recent graduates on their first feature projects. With the material that we had, we spent an entire day in a conference room with five whiteboards. And I had John Tintori, the head of the uh, graduate film program, uh, the former head of the graduate film program. He's an editor who cut all of John's sales movies. And my editor, who had cut 29 features, and uh, we even got some help from Carol Dysinger, who was my documentary professor. She just won the Oscar last year for uh, how to learn how to skateboard in a war zone when you're a girl uh, about a school in Afghanistan. So, I mean, I had this, this incredible talent and brain trust as we were trying to figure out how do we tell this story? How do we weave the material that these women gave us and to tell a bigger story? The women did it, you know, not just in the interviews, but, you know, we spent time with them. 
uh, in their homes with Marianne Kennedy with her horses where she gets her spirituality. This is a woman who was completely rejected by her family because she was gay and uh, because of their religion. When you see Marianne with her horses, where she gets her um, spirituality and she's talking about her childhood and the loss of not having a relationship with her family. Um, it's, it's so powerful. And uh, it tells you so much about the world that they inhabit. And it's been a really powerful um, journey. I'm almost sad that it's over because I've completely fallen in love with every one of these women and their stories. And, um, and I'm just thrilled and giddy now to share it with the world. Um, You've, Talked a little bit about, you know, your your own journey in becoming a filmmaker a little bit later on in life and uh, and just the experience of this being, you know, first documentary feature. And, you know, we talked a little bit before as well about, you know, your experience with coming to Edmonton International Film Festival uh, a few years prior with a short film. Maybe talk to us a little bit about more of your own journey that you kind of let us in and, and, and whatever you're most comfortable with, but your own experiences and your commitment to advocacy and maybe how that helps you as a filmmaker uh, or, and maybe even specifically on this project. I sometimes joke and say I'm kind of like a cat. I've had nine lives and some of these, those lives have been so different from the other periods in my life. But, you know, as a teenager, I was a troubled kid. I grew up in the Midwest in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I got into a lot of trouble and I ended up in prison at 17 for robbing a photo mount with a toy gun. And it was a very stupid uh, uh, prank and impulsive thing. And yet while I and, and I was sent to an adult prison and while I was there, I experienced something that no teenager should ever have to experience. And I got out of prison at 21 and I fled uh, Michigan, went to New York and reinvented myself, went through put myself through college, got into the software business, had a very successful career. And then at 40, um, I had made enough money to retire from doing that. And um, I went back. And uh, I, I think I'd always sort of, that had been part of my mission was like, what happened to me as a teenager should never happen to any teenager. And, uh, and I kind of made it my mission. And I became an activist and I wrote a book about my experience and I worked with the human rights group and I helped um, spearhead legislation, the first ever federal legislation to address rape in prison. I worked with several states to raise the age of adult criminal responsibility. It was part of, I think, my healing and uh, a channel for my outrage, um, because I, I think I was just as outraged at the system that allowed it as I was to the men that raped me when I went in there. That was what motivated me uh, to become a, a human rights activist. And then going to film school was sort of a continuation of that because I wrote the book to put a human face on what happens uh, to help bring about change. And along the way, I kind of noticed that film is such a powerful medium. And that was my goal of going to film school was, well, twofold. I wanted to adapt my book. I had some producers that wanted to adapt it into a feature, but I'm a little bit of a control freak. And I thought, well, if anybody's going to ruin it, I am. So when I got the interview for NYU, they said, do you have any questions for us? And I said, just one, how realistic is it that I'll be able to take my book and adapt it into a film? And they said, very realistic. And I go, well, that's why I'm here. Um, but I want to learn how to use film as a vehicle for, for uh, change. And I think that film can change hearts and minds if it captures the heart, if it can move you then it can, and, and if you're deeply moved, then that can perhaps change the way you think. And so that was my goal. 
and everything that I did in film school was actually geared towards making my, my, my book into a feature. My first year film was like an eight or 12 minute short. And my second year film was a 28 minute short. And then I worked on the script and I moved to Nashville. And then that's when my friend Bill came to me and said, Hey, I got this idea for a film. And I wasn't expecting it. And I'll tell you that, you know, the way that the film took off and I just got swept up into it, I would tell you that the film chose me. I didn't choose it. And it was very refreshing, actually, to get out of prison, to get out of the genre that I had been working in. I, I even I, my thesis film, I did a, a couple of institutional um, orientation films for uh, New York State Department of Corrections on how to avoid rape in prison. And, uh, you know, like all of my work had been now for quite, quite a number of years in, in that genre. And I put that on the shelf to make this film. And I think in the course of making this film, I realized how much I learned as a filmmaker. I mean, so much I had these, these blinders on. I was like, I'm going to make fish into a film, you know, learning everything I could to do that. Uh, my second year film I shot in the very prison I was in 30 years earlier, the 28 minute film. But here was this story about gay women and Southern music. And I had empathy because I, you know, part of my, my life experience. And I think probably also... I think people that experience deep trauma, it changes them. And, and it, it does, if it doesn't destroy them, it gives you empathy. And I think the women sensed that. I think the women knew they were safe. They did based on what they brought in the film. It was very refreshing to get out of prison. It was very refreshing to work on something else. Some of my friends from film school were, were actually grateful that I, I did this because they were afraid that once I made fish, I probably wouldn't make any more films. And then I found it interesting well, in the course of, of working on this film, that suddenly we start uncovering sexual harassment and much of the work that I was doing when I was working on the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And I, I served as a consultant on the commission. And, you know, a lot of what we were doing for several years was looking at the institutional barriers to safety. I think so that experience sort of, uh, I think, somewhat informed uh, the work that I did in this film as well. So I'm hoping that, uh, that Invisible will make a difference. I, and I, I, so far, everywhere we've screened it, people have been deeply, deeply moved. And, and people come up and they said, I had no idea this was going on or that it's still going on. It's very gratifying as a social entrepreneur to see a body of work that I've poured my heart and soul into start having an impact. And that's kind of my highest goal for the film, you know, is, um, Let's start a conversation. Let's start some examination of, of what the hell's going on in the Nashville music scene. It's going to ruffle some feathers, but that's okay. That's what we do as, um, as activists. Once the film's out, I'm ready to pick up fish again. And uh, I think that's going to be my next project. I want to make that, that movie now. For anybody out there that's curious about the film and maybe wants to learn a little bit more about it or even about yourself, TJ, uh, are there specific places online, whether it's social media or not, where they can find out a bit more about Invisible or about yourself? Well, you know, it's funny. I let my I let my own personal page lapse during the pandemic. You know, I've been so heads down on on uh, Invisible. But you can learn about Invisible by going to uh, outhousefilms.com. Uh, That's our, our production company. Uh, we're also on uh, on Facebook, Invisible Feature Doc. Go to, um, uh, you can learn about my book. You can just Google Fish, A Memoir of a Boy in a Man's Prison. Uh, if somebody's out there and wants to help me uh, uh, make that a reality, please reach out. Um, I can be reached at tjparcel at yahoo.com. I'm going to continue for as long as I'm uh, above ground to uh, continue to uh, just try to use art as a vehicle for social change. 
Uh, absolutely. And this film does that in so many different ways, whether you are in love with the music that you're going to hear in the film, or you can identify with what the story of these women have had to go through. You know, it's a, it's a transformative experience. The film is called Invisible. It's a documentary film done by TJ Parcell, who's been our guest today, the director and producer of said film. And it's featured as part of the Edmonton International Film Festival. You can stream Invisible online as part of the festival on the Eventive app by going to edmontonfilmfest.com. Or as I always suggest, you can attend us in person at the screening on Friday, October 8th at 6.30 p.m. or Saturday, October 9th at 2.30 p.m. where TJ will actually be in person at Landmark City Center Cinemas 9 uh, doing a Q&A as well. TJ, uh, thank you so much for this piece of work. It's a, a incredibly you know, humbling to be able to talk to somebody about women that have gone through these experiences and, and watching this film, you just, you feel the weight of what they've had to experience and what they're still working through as well. And I appreciate you being able to, to give us their stories in such an incredibly sensitive and articulate way. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope people get out and see it. And, you know, listen, I mean, there's some wonderfully uh, light moments in the film as well. Uh, there's moments in the film where the laughter in the theater is so loud. You think the roof's going to come off. Uh, the music is, is just incredible. And, we even have Linda Ronstadt in the film and we have the last recorded instance of Linda Ronstadt singing on camera. Yeah, yeah. That is a very powerful scene and that alone is worth coming to see the movie. Yeah. I didn't want to spoil too much, but you, you see it for that alone, whether you even have any context for that scene, uh, it's still incredibly powerful. TJ, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Do you even want to try? A love song is a love song. I really do think I've always known I was gay. It's no secret. But maybe it is. Maybe, you know, there are people out there who just, they don't know. But, surprise. <laughs> I'm gonna live where the green grass grows Watch my corn pop up in the rows Every night be tucked in close to you Raise our kids yeah, there's a huge number of, of gay women songwriters who don't get in front of an audience. We were writing the songs for the, you know, for country radio songs. It was a lot of us. <laughs> I don't know how many one, number ones I've had. Barbara Mandrell, Ronnie Millsap, Charlie Pride. It's a Willie Nelson single called There You Are. Oh, and Smoky Mountain Rain became the Tennessee State song. It was wild to just turn on the radio and hear your song. Ring on Her Finger, Time on Her Hands, which was our first single, and Dixie Road. Both uh, number ones and all that stuff. Reba McIntyre, Martina McBride, Art Garfunkel, Reba asked me to be in her band. My next gig was with Garth Brooks. <laughs> and then that's when Mi Vida Loca became a hit. I am so happy when I write a song I like. I swear to God, yeah. if somebody offered me a million dollars for that great songwriting feeling, I am convinced I would take the song. Wow. I do feel like in the in the country music world there is a price and there is a real strong pull to keep people quiet. A lot of these people like to be known as the guy who will say it. 
who will stand up for Christian American family values. Girl, what were you thinking? You know, the bottom line, hun, is sometimes we just don't feel what you feel. I mean, it's kind of like your song, Shut Up and Drive. Well, shut up and sing. Like you could tell, he was committed to confronting me. He dug his heels in, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that, if I'm not mistaken, that's the guy that I, I think his daughter has come out since. Ain't life something? Small town blues. Small town I don't care what people think anymore. This is about the music. And if you have a problem with it, then you don't listen. You don't listen to Ruthie Foster. I'm cool with that. <laughs>